Section 5 of The Discourse on Inequality by Jean-Jacques Rousseau This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Eric Jonas. A Discourse upon the Origin and the Foundation of the Inequality Among Mankind by Jean-Jacques Rousseau Discourse Second Part Section 1 The first man, who, after enclosing a piece of ground, took it into his head to say, This is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. How many crimes, how many wars, how many murders, how many misfortunes and horrors would that man have saved the human species, who, pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditches, should have cried to his fellows, be sure not to listen to this imposture. You are lost, if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong equally to us all, and the earth itself to nobody. But it is highly probable that things were now come to such a pass that they could not continue much longer in the same way. For as this idea of property depends on several prior ideas which could only spring up gradually one after another, it was not formed all at once in the human mind. Men must have made great progress, they must have acquired a great stock of industry and knowledge, and transmitted and increased it from age to age before they could arrive at this last term of the state of nature. Let us therefore take up things a little higher, and collect into one point of view, and in their most natural order, this slow succession of events and mental improvements. The first sentiment of man was that of his existence, his first care that of preserving it. The productions of the earth yielded him all the assistance he required. Instinct prompted him to make use of them. Among the various appetites which made him at different times experience different modes of existence, there was one that excited him to perpetuate his species. And this blind propensity, quite void of anything like pure love or affection, produced nothing but an act that was merely animal. The present heat once allayed, the sexes took no further notice of each other, and even the child ceased to have any tie to his mother, the moment he ceased to want her assistance. Such was the condition of the infant man, such was the life of an animal confined at first to pure sensations, and so far from harboring any thought of forcing her gifts from nature that he scarcely availed himself of those which she offered to him of her own accord. But difficulty soon arose, and there was a necessity for learning how to surmount them. The height of some trees which prevented his reaching their fruits, the competition of other animals equally fond of the same fruits, the fierceness of many that even aimed at his life, these were so many circumstances which obliged him to apply to bodily exercise. There was a necessity for becoming active, swift-footed, and sturdy in battle. The natural arms, which are stones and the branches of trees, soon offered themselves to his assistance. He learned to surmount the obstacles of nature, to contend in the case of necessity with other animals, to dispute his subsistence even with other men, or indemnify himself for the loss of whatever he found himself obliged to part with the strongest. In proportion as the human species grew more numerous, and extended itself, its pains likewise multiplied and increased. The difference of soils, climates, and seasons might have forced men to observe some difference in their way of living. 
bad harvests, long and severe winters, and scorching summers which parched up all the fruits of the earth, required extraordinary exertions of industry. On the seashore, and the banks of rivers, they invented the line and the hook, and became fishermen and ichthyophagus. In the forests they made themselves bows and arrows, and became huntsmen and warriors. In the cold countries they covered themselves with the skins of the beasts they had killed, thunder, a volcano, or some happy accident made them acquainted with fire, a new resource against the rigors of winter. They discovered the method of preserving this element, then that of reproducing it, and lastly the way of preparing it with the flesh of animals, which heretofore they devoured raw from the carcass. This reiterated application of various beings to himself and to one another must have naturally engendered in the mind of man the idea of certain relations. These relations, which we express by the words great, little, strong, weak, swift, slow, fearful, bold, and the like, compared occasionally, and almost without thinking of it, produced in him some kind of reflection, or rather a mechanical prudence, which pointed out to him the precautions most essential to his preservation and safety. The new lights resulting from this development increased his superiority over other animals, by making him sensible of it. He laid himself out to ensnare them. He played them a thousand tricks, and though several surpassed him in strength or in swiftness, he in time became the master of those that could be of any service to him, and a sore enemy to those that could do him any mischief. Tis thus that the first look he gave into himself produced the first emotion of pride in him. Tis thus that, at a time, he scarce knew how to distinguish between the different ranks of existence, by attributing to his species the first rank among animals in general, he prepared himself at a distance to pretend to it as an individual among those of his own species in particular. Though other men were not to him what they are to us, and he had scarce more intercourse with them than with other animals, they were not overlooked in his observations. The conformities which in time he might discover between them and between himself and his female made him judge of those he did not perceive, and seeing that they all behaved as himself would have done in similar circumstances, he concluded that their manner of thinking and willing was quite conformable to his own, and that this important truth, when once engraved deeply on his mind, made him follow, by a presentiment as sure as any logic, and withal much quicker, the best rules of conduct, which for the sake of his own safety and advantage it was proper he should observe towards them. Instructed by experience that the love of happiness is the sole principle of all human actions, he found himself in a condition to distinguish the few cases in which common interest might authorize him to build upon the assistance of his fellows, and those still fewer in which a competition of interests might justly render it suspected. In the first case he united with them in the same flock, or at most by the same kind of free association which obliged none of its members, and lasted no longer than the transitory necessity that had given birth to it. In the second case every one aimed at his own private advantage, either by open force if he found himself strong enough, or by cunning and address if he thought himself too weak to use violence. Such was the manner in which men might have insensibly acquired some gross idea of their mutual engagements and the advantage of fulfilling them, but this only as far as their present and sensible interest required. 
for as to foresight they were utter strangers to it, and far from troubling their heads about a distant futurity, they scarce thought of the day following. Was a deer to be taken? Every one saw that to succeed he must faithfully stand to his post, but suppose a hare to have slipped by within reach of any one of them, it is not to be doubted, but he pursued it without scruple, and when he had seized his prey never reproached himself with having made his companions miss theirs. We may easily conceive that such an intercourse scarce required a more refined language than that of crows and monkeys, which flock together almost in the same manner. Inarticulate exclamations, a great many gestures, and some imitative sounds must have been for a long time the universal language of mankind, and by joining to these in every country some articulate and conventional sounds, of which, as I have already hinted, it is not very easy to explain the institution, there arose particular languages, but rude, imperfect, and such nearly as are to be found at this day among several savage nations. My pen, straightened by the rapidity of time, the abundance of things I have to say, and the almost insensible progress of the first improvements, flies like an arrow over numberless ages, for the slower the succession of events, the quicker I may allow myself to be in relating them. At length, these first improvements enabled man to improve at a greater rate. Industry grew perfect in proportion as the mind became more enlightened men soon ceasing to fall asleep under the first tree or take shelter in the first cavern lit upon some hard and sharp kinds of stone resembling spades or hatchets and employed them to dig the ground cut down the trees and with the branches built huts which they afterwards bethought themselves of plastering over with clay or dirt this was the epoch of a first revolution which produced the establishment and distinction of families and which introduced a species of property, and along with it perhaps a thousand quarrels and battles. As the strongest, however, were probably the first to make themselves cabins, which they knew they were able to defend, we may conclude that the weak found it much shorter and safer to imitate than to attempt to dislodge them, and as to those who were already provided with cabins, no one could have any great temptation to seize upon that of his neighbor, not so much because it did not belong to him, as because it could be of no service to him, and as besides, to make himself master of it, he must expose himself to a very sharp conflict with the present occupiers. The first developments of the heart were the effects of a new situation, which united husbands and wives, parents and children, under one roof. The habit of living together gave birth to the sweetest sentiments the human species is acquainted with, conjugal and paternal love every family became a little society. So much the more firmly united as a mutual attachment and liberty were the only bonds of it, and it was now that the sexes, whose way of life had been hitherto the same, began to adopt different manners and customs. The women became more sedentary, and accustomed themselves to stay at home and look after their children, while the men rambled abroad in quest of subsistence for the whole family. The two sexes likewise, by living a little more at their ease, began to lose somewhat of their usual ferocity and sturdiness. But if on the one hand individuals became less able to engage separately with wild beasts, they on the other were more easily got together to make a common resistance against them. In this new state of things, the simplicity and solitariness of man's life, the limitedness of his wants, 
and the instruments which he had invented to satisfy them, leaving him a great deal of leisure, he employed it to supply himself with several conveniences unknown to his ancestors. And this was the first yoke he inadvertently imposed upon himself, and the first source of mischief which he prepared for his children. For besides continuing in this manner to soften both body and mind, these conveniences having through use lost almost all their aptness to please, and even degenerated into real wants, the privation of them became far more intolerable than the possession of them had been agreeable. To lose them was a misfortune, to possess them no happiness. Here we may a little better discover how the use of speech insensibly commences or improves in the bosom of every family, and may likewise form conjectures concerning the manner in which diverse particular causes might have propagated language and accelerated its progress by rendering it every day more and more necessary. Great inundations or earthquakes surrounded inhabited districts with water or precipice, Portions of the continent were by revolutions of the globe torn off and split into islands. It is obvious that among men thus collected and forced to live together, a common idiom must have started up much sooner than among those who freely wandered through the forests of the mainland. Thus it is very possible that the inhabitants of the islands formed in this manner, after their first essays in navigation, brought among us the use of speech, and it is very probable, at least, that society and languages commenced in islands and even acquired perfection there, before the inhabitants of the continent knew anything of either. Everything now begins to wear a new aspect. Those who heretofore wandered through the woods, by taking a more settled way of life, gradually flock together, coalesce into several separate bodies, and at length form in every country distinct nations, united in character and manners, not by any laws or regulations, but by a uniform manner of life, a sameness of provisions, and the common influence of the climate. A permanent neighborhood must at last infallibly create some connection between different families. The transitory commerce required by nature soon produced, among the youth of both sexes living in contiguous cabins, another kind of commerce which besides being equally agreeable, is rendered more durable by mutual intercourse. Men begin to consider different objects, and to make comparisons. They insensibly acquire ideas of merit and beauty, and these soon produce sentiments of preference. By seeing each other often, they contract a habit, which makes it painful not to see each other always. Tender and agreeable sentiments steal into the soul, and are by the smallest opposition wound up into the most impetuous fury. Jealousy kindles with love, discord triumphs, and the gentlest of passions requires sacrifices of human blood to appease it. In proportion as ideas and sentiments succeed each other, and the head and the heart exercise themselves, men continue to shake off their original wildness, and their connections become more intimate and extensive. They now begin to assemble round a great tree, singing and dancing, the genuine offspring of love and leisure, become the amusement, or rather the occupation, of the men and women, free from care, thus gathered together. Every one begins to survey the rest, and wishes to be surveyed himself, and public esteem acquires a value. He who sings or dances best, the handsomest, the strongest, the most dexterous, the most eloquent, comes to be the most respected. This was the first step towards inequality, and at the same time towards vice. From these first preferences there proceeded on one side vanity and contempt, 
on the other envy and shame and the fermentation raised by these new leavens at length produced combinations fatal to happiness and innocence men no sooner began to set upon each other and know what esteem was than each laid claim to it and it was no longer safe for any man to refuse it to another hence the first duties of civility and politeness even among savages and hence every voluntary injury became an affront as besides the mischief which resulted from it as an injury the party offended was sure to find in it a contempt for his person more intolerable than the mischief itself it was thus that every man punishing the contempt expressed for him by others in proportion to the value he set upon himself the effects of revenge became terrible and men learned to be sanguinary and cruel such precisely was the degree attained by most of the savage nations with whom we are acquainted and it is for want of sufficiently distinguishing ideas and observing at how great a distance these people were from the first state of nature that so many authors have hastily concluded that man is naturally cruel and requires a regular system of police to be reclaimed whereas nothing can be more gentle than he in his primitive state when placed by nature at an equal distance from the stupidity of brutes and the pernicious good sense of civilized man and equally confined by instinct and reason to the care of providing against the mischief which threatens him he is withheld by natural compassion from doing any injury to others so far from being ever so little prone even to return that which he has received for according to the axiom of the wise Locke, where there is no property there can be no injury but we must take notice that the society now formed and the relations now established among men require in them qualities different from those which they derived from their primitive constitution that as a sense of morality began to insinuate itself into human actions and every man before the enacting of laws was the only judge and avenger of the injuries he had received that goodness of heart suitable to the pure state of nature by no means suited infant society that it was necessary punishment should become severer in the same proportion that the opportunities of offending became more frequent and the dread of vengeance add strength to the weak curb of the law thus though men were become less patient and natural compassion had already suffered some alteration this period of the development of the human faculties holding a just mean between the indolence of the primitive state and the petulant activity of self-love must have been the happiest and most durable epoch the more we reflect on this state the more convinced we shall be that it was the least subject of any revolutions the best for man and that nothing could have drawn him out of it but some fatal accident which for the public good should never have happened the example of the savages most of whom have been found in this condition seems to confirm that mankind was formed whatever to remain in it that in this condition is the real youth of the world and that all ulterior improvements have been so many steps in appearance towards the perfection of individuals but in fact towards the decrepitness of the species as long as men remained satisfied with their rustic cabins as long as they confined themselves to the use of clothes made of the skins of other animals and the use of thorns and fish bones in putting these skins together as long as they continued to consider feathers and shells as sufficient ornaments and to paint their bodies of different colors to improve or ornament their bows and arrows 
to form and scoop out with sharp-edged stones some little fishing-boats or clumsy instruments of music in a word as long as they undertook such works only as a single person could finish and stuck to such arts as did not require the joint endeavours of several hands they lived free healthy honest and happy as much as their nature would admit and continued to enjoy with each other all the pleasures of an independent intercourse but from the moment one man began to stand in need of another's assistance from the moment it appeared an advantage for one man to possess the quantity of provisions requisite for two all equality vanished property started up labor became necessary and boundless forests became smiling fields which it was found necessary to water with human sweat and in which slavery and misery were soon seen to sprout out and grow with the fruits of the earth metallurgy and agriculture were the two arts whose invention produced this great revolution with the poet it is gold and silver but with the philosopher it is iron and corn which have civilized men and ruined mankind accordingly both one and the other were unknown to the savages of america who for that very reason have always continued savages nay other nations seem to have continued in a state of barbarism as long as they continued to exercise one only of these arts without the other and perhaps one of the best reasons that can be assigned why europe has been if not earlier at least more constantly and better civilized than the other quarters of the world is that she both abounds most in iron and is best qualified to produce corn it is a very difficult matter to tell how men came to know anything of iron and the art of employing it for we are not to suppose that they should of themselves think of digging it out of the mines and preparing it for fusion before they knew what could be the result of such a process on the other hand there is the less reason to attribute this discovery to any accidental fire as mines are formed nowhere but in dry and barren places and such as are bare of trees and plants so that it looks as if nature had taken pains to keep from us so mischievous a secret nothing therefore remains but the extraordinary circumstance of some volcano which belching forth metallic substances ready fused might have given the spectators a notion of imitating that operation of nature and after all we must suppose them endured with an extraordinary stock of courage and foresight to undertake so painful a work and have at so great a distance an eye to the advantages they might derive from it qualities scarcely suitable but to heads more exercised than those of such discoveries can be supposed to have been as to agriculture the principles of it were known a long time before the practice of it took place and it is hardly possible that men constantly employed in drawing their subsistence from trees and plants should not have early hit on the means employed by nature for the generation of vegetables but in all probability it was very late before their industry took a turn that way either because trees which with their land and water game supplied them with sufficient food did not require their attention or because they did not know the use of corn or because they had no instruments to cultivate it or because they were destitute of foresight in regard to future necessities or in fine because they wanted means to hinder others from running away with the fruits of their labors we may believe that on their becoming more industrious they began their agriculture by cultivating with sharp stones and pointed sticks a few pulse or roots about their cabins 
and that it was a long time before they knew the methods of preparing corn, and were provided with the instruments necessary to raise it in large quantities, not to mention the necessity there is, in order to follow this occupation and sow lands, to consent to lose something at present to gain a great deal hereafter, a precaution very foreign to the turn of man's mind in a savage state, in which, as I have already taken notice, he can hardly foresee his wants from morning to night. For this reason the invention of other arts must have been necessary to oblige mankind to apply to that of agriculture. As soon as men were wanted to fuse and forge iron, others were wanted to maintain them. The more hands were employed in manufactures, the fewer hands were left to provide subsistence for all, though the number of mouths to be supplied with food continued the same, and as some required commodities in exchange for their iron, the rest at last found out the method of making iron subservient to the multiplication of commodities. Hence, on the one hand, husbandry and agriculture, and on the other, the art of working metals and of multiplying the uses of them. To the tilling of the earth the distribution of it necessarily succeeded, and to property once acknowledged the first rules of justice. For to secure every man his own, every man must have something. Moreover, as men began to extend their views to futurity, and all found themselves in possession of more or less goods capable of being lost, every one in particular had reason to fear, lest reprisals should be made on him for any injury he might do to others. The origin is so much the more natural, as it is impossible to conceive how property can flow from any other source but industry. For what can a man add but his labor to things which he has not made, in order to acquire a property in them? Tis the labor of the hands alone, which giving the husbandman a title to the produce of the land he has tilled, gives him a title to the land itself, at least till he has gathered in the fruits of it and so on from year to year, and this enjoyment forming a continued possession is easily transformed into a property. The ancients, says Grotius, by giving to Ceres the epithet of legislatrix, and to a festival celebrated in her honor the name of Thesmophoria, insinuated that the distribution of lands produced a new kind of right, that is, the right of property different from that which results from the law of nature. Things thus circumstanced might have remained equal if men's talents had been equal, and if, for instance, the use of iron and the consumption of commodities had always held an exact proportion to each other. But, as this proportion had no support, it was soon broken. The man that had most strength performed the most labor, the most dexterous turned his labor to best account, the most ingenious found out methods of lessening his labor, the husbandman required more iron, or the smith more corn, and while both worked equally, one earned a great deal by his labor, while the other could scarce live by his. It is thus that natural inequality insensibly unfolds itself with that arising from a variety of combinations, and that the difference among men, developed by the difference of their circumstances, becomes more sensible, more permanent in its effects, and begins to influence in the same proportion the condition of private persons. Things once arrived at this period, it is an easy matter to imagine the rest. I shall not stop to describe the successive inventions of other arts, the progress of language, the trial and employments of talents, the inequality of fortunes, the use or abuse of riches, 
nor all the details which follow these, and which every one may easily supply. I shall just give a glance at mankind placed in this new order of things. Behold, then, all our faculties developed, our memory and imagination at work, self-love interested, reason rendered active, and the mind almost arrived at the utmost bounds of that perfection it is capable of. Behold, all our natural qualities put in motion, the rank and condition of every man established, not only as to the quantum of property and the power of serving or hurting others, but likewise as to genius, beauty, strength, or address, merit, or talents, and as these were the only qualities which could command respect, it was found necessary to have, or at least to affect them. It was requisite for men to be thought what they really were not. To be and to appear became two very different things, and from this distinction sprang pomp and knavery, and all the vices which form their train. On the other hand, man, heretofore free and independent, was now in consequence of a multitude of new wants brought under subjection, as it were, to all nature, and especially to his fellows, whose slave in some sense he became even by becoming their master. If rich, he stood in need of their services, if poor, of their assistance. Even mediocrity itself could not enable him to do without them. He must therefore have been continually at work to interest them in his happiness, and make them, if not really, at least apparently find their advantage in laboring for his. This rendered him sly and artful in his dealings with some, imperious and cruel in his dealings with others, and laid him under the necessity of using ill all those whom he stood in need of, as often as he could not awe them into a compliance with his will, and did not find it his interest to purchase it at the expense of real services. In fine, an insatiable ambition, the rage of raising their relative fortunes, not so much through real necessity as to overtop others, inspire all men with a wicked inclination to injure each other, and with a secret jealousy so much the more dangerous as to carry its point with the greater security, and often puts on the face of benevolence. In a word, sometimes nothing was to be seen but a contention of endeavors on the one hand, and an opposition of interests on the other, while a secret desire of thriving at the expense of others constantly prevailed. Such were the first effects of property, and the inseparable attendance of infant inequality. Riches, before the invention of signs to represent them, could scarce consist in anything but lands and cattle, the only real goods which men can possess. But when estates increased so much in number, and in extent to take in whole countries and touch each other, it became impossible for one man to aggrandize himself, but at the expense of some other and the supernumerary inhabitants, who were too weak or too indolent to make such acquisitions in their turn, impoverished without losing anything, because while everything about them changed, they alone remained the same, were obliged to receive or force their subsistence from the hands of the rich, and hence began to flow, according to the different characters of each, domination and slavery, or violence and rapine. The rich, on their side, scarce began to taste the pleasure of commanding, when they preferred it to every other, and making use of their old slaves to acquire new ones, they no longer thought of anything but subduing and enslaving their neighbors. 
like those ravenous wolves who having once tasted human flesh despise every other food and devour nothing but men for the future it is thus that the most powerful or the most wretched respectively considering their powers and wretchedness as a kind of title to the substance of others even equivalent to that of property the equality once broken was followed by the most shocking disorders it is thus that the usurpations of the rich the pillagings of the poor and the unbridled passions of all by stifling the cries of natural compassion and the as yet feeble voice of justice rendered man avaricious, wicked, and ambitious. There arose between the title of the strongest and that of the first occupier a perpetual conflict, which always ended in battery and bloodshed. Infant society became a scene of the most horrible warfare. Mankind, thus debased and harassed, and no longer able to retreat or renounce the unhappy acquisitions it had made, laboring in short merely to its confusion by the abuse of those faculties which in themselves do it so much honor brought itself to the very brink of ruin and destruction atonitus novitate mali divesque miserce effugere optat opus et quo modo voverat odit but it is impossible that men should not sooner or later have made reflections on so wretched a situation and upon the calamities with which they were overwhelmed. The rich in particular must have soon perceived how much they suffered by a perpetual war, of which they alone supported all the expense, and in which, though all risked life, they alone risked any substance. Besides, whatever color they might pretend to give their usurpations, they sufficiently saw that these usurpations were in the main founded upon false and precarious titles, and that what they had acquired by mere force others could gain again by mere force rest out of their hands without leaving them the least room to complain of such a proceeding even those who owed all their riches to their own industry could scarce ground their acquisitions upon a better title it availed them nothing to say twas i built this wall i acquired this spot by my labor who traced it out for you another might object and what right have you to expect payment at our expense for doing that we did not oblige you to do? Don't you know that numbers of your brethren perish or suffer grievously for want of what you possess more than suffices nature, and that you should have had the express and unanimous consent of mankind to appropriate to yourself of their common more than was requisite for your private subsistence? Destitute of solid reasons to justify and sufficient force to defend himself, crushing individuals with ease, but with equal ease crushed by numbers, one against all, and unable, on account of mutual jealousies, to unite with his equals against banditti united by the common hopes of pillage, the rich man, thus pressed by necessity, at last conceived the deepest project that ever entered the human mind. This was to employ in his favor the very forces that attacked him, to make allies of his enemies to inspire them with other maxims and make them adopt other institutions as favorable to his pretensions as the law of nature was unfavorable to them with this view after laying before his neighbors all the horrors of a situation which armed them all one against another which rendered their possessions as burdensome as their wants were intolerable and in which no one would expect any safety either in poverty or riches he easily invented specious arguments to bring them over to his purpose. 
let us unite said he to secure the weak from oppression restrain the ambitious and secure to every man the possession of what belongs to him let us form rules of justice and peace to which all may be obliged to conform which shall not accept persons but may in some sort make amends for the caprice of fortune by submitting alike the powerful and the weak to the observance of mutual duties in a word instead of turning our forces against ourselves let us collect them into a sovereign power which may govern us by wise laws may protect and defend all the members of the association repel common enemies and maintain perpetual concord and harmony among us much fewer words of this kind were sufficient to draw in a parcel of rustics whom it was an easy matter to impose upon who had besides too many quarrels among themselves to live without arbiters and too much avarice and ambition to live long without masters all offered their necks to the yoke in hopes of securing their liberty for though they had sense enough to perceive the advantages of a political constitution they had not experience enough to see beforehand the dangers of it those among them who were best qualified to foresee abuses were precisely those who expected to benefit by them even the soberest judged it requisite to sacrifice one part of their liberty to ensure the other as a man dangerously wounded in any of his limbs readily parts with it to save the rest of his body such was or must have been had man been left to himself the origin of society and of the laws which increased the fetters of the weak and the strength of the rich irretrievably destroyed natural liberty fixed forever the laws of property and inequality changed an artful usurpation into an irrevocable title and for the benefit of a few ambitious individuals subjected the rest of mankind to perpetual labor servitude and misery we may easily conceive how the establishment of a single society rendered that of all the rest absolutely necessary and how to make head against united forces it became necessary for the rest of mankind to unite in their turn societies once formed in this manner soon multiplied or spread to such degree as to cover the face of the earth and not to leave a corner in the whole universe where a man could throw off the yoke and withdraw his head from under the often ill-conducted sword which he saw permanently hanging over it the civil law being thus become the common rule of citizens the law of nature no longer obtained but among the different societies in which under the name of the law of nations it was qualified by some tacit conventions to render commerce possible and supply the place of natural compassion which losing by degrees all that influence over societies which it originally had over individuals no longer exists but in some great souls who consider themselves as citizens of the world enforcing the imaginary barriers that separate people from people after the example of the sovereign being from whom we all derive our existence make the whole human race the object of their benevolence end of discourse second part section one